Hello, I'm David Mosscroft. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. In Canada and around the world, anxious, weary populations are looking forward to returning to something that will approximate normal life. That return is predicated on, among other things, mass COVID-19 vaccination efforts that continue along slow and steady. As more of us get the jab, states including Canada are considering vaccine certification programs for domestic use, foreign travel, or both. But concerned individuals, including health, privacy, and social science experts, are raising a number of concerns with the idea. While a vaccine passport, quote-unquote, might seem intuitively like a good idea, it's fraught with risks and trade-offs, leaving us to ask, should we adopt vaccine certification programs? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Françoise Bayless, university research professor, bioethicist, and author of Altered Inheritance, CRISPR, and the Ethics of Human Genome Editing. Let's start by sorting out the nomenclature, because the the public debate that I've seen tends to suffer from, imagine this, imprecision. (laughs) So what are we talking about when we're talking about vaccine, quote unquote, passports? And how might we distinguish, say, international travel certifications from domestic certifications? That's a great opening question, because the debate's actually been going on for close to a year. And in that context, the language has, in fact, shifted and changed quite a bit. So if we go back to the very beginning, maybe almost May of last year, so not quite a year, the conversation was around this idea of immunity passports. And the reason for that is that at the time, we didn't have vaccines. We were working towards that. But what we did have was a number of people getting sick, and some of them were fortunate enough to survive. And the idea was, well, if I've had COVID-19 and I've survived, I presumably have immunity. And so I shouldn't have to be constrained uh, in terms of my social movement the way other people are. I can be amongst those people that gets back to work, helps restart the economy, can go into nursing homes, et cetera. A lot of people objected, myself included, saying, first of all, we don't know that you have immunity. If you do have immunity, we don't know for how long. The testing that's available is deeply problematic at the times. Lots of problems in terms of what we call false negatives and false positives, which basically means you're getting wrong information. Um, And there were also a lot of ethical challenges. I think we were mostly successful in pushing back on that and saying, look, the science isn't there. Practically, it's not going to work. And ethically, it's just fraught. Then we had vaccines and the language changed. And so we were no longer talking about immunity passports. Now we're talking about vaccine passports. And in a way, that answers some of the previous objections. So some of the scientific concerns go away. And also some of the ethical concerns are mitigated. So certainly in the abstract, a vaccine passport is better than an immunity passport. And the main reason is that you actually have some science now behind it, because you'll actually know that this person on this day got this vaccine. It was a one dose or a two dose. They have to come in for a booster. We'll get that information later. Um, And so you actually have some data uh, that's a little bit more robust than I got sick and I survived. Um, And also, you actually had something that's better aligned with public health goals and objectives, meaning If you have an immunity passport, you're actually encouraging people to go out and get themselves infected and hopefully survive. 
Whereas with a vaccine passport, you're encouraging people to go out and get vaccinated, which supports public health. So now we're in the conversation about vaccine passports. And the interesting thing is the language doesn't really work if you're thinking about it both internationally and domestically. So we think of a passport for crossing borders. So that might make sense in terms of international travel, but the language is pretty odd if you think about it in terms of its domestic use. And just to be clear, examples of domestic use are getting access to long-term care facilities, getting access to uh, sporting venues, getting access to religious sites. We don't usually think about, oh, I need a passport to go to church or I need a passport to go to the gym. And so I think we need to think very carefully um, about the language. Um, and then once we've got clear on the language, then we should think about how should we or shouldn't we use this. So one last comment about language. I'm advocating very strongly not to use the word passport, but to talk about vaccine certification. The reason for that is everybody can and should get a vaccine certificate if they have been vaccinated. It would be wrong to vaccinate somebody and not give them paperwork of some kind, whether that's actually on paper or part of uh, an app in terms of some digital record. You can't put something into someone and not tell them what it was, not have a record of the batch lot, of the name of the vaccine, of the date it was given, when you have to come in for a booster. So I think we need to start our conversation with one thing is inevitable, there will be vaccine certification. Everything else is up to us. And it's a political decision. It's an ethical decision. It's an economic decision. And we need to think clearly about how should we use these certificates. So when I was coming up with the, the name of this episode, every episode is a question. And, and it was, I had initially used passport and then sort of deleted it and then wrote certificate and then deleted it and then wrote certification. <laughs> I went back and forth. Because there, there seems to be this, well, I, I agree, the passport seems to be the wrong word, sort of full stop. But if we're talking about the, the, the certification that is used in a particular way, does it, does it change the, the nomenclature? So for instance, I think most people would agree that we should have the certification, which is to say, as you suggest, you have the piece of paper, you have the, the digital entry. But if you're going to use it for something, does it does it change what we call it? You know, when it, does, does the actual act of having to present it change it from a certification to, to something else? Like a pass, for instance, I've seen, is it Israel that's calling it a green pass, for instance? Yes, Israel is calling it a green pass. But I think what happens is that if you use a particular kind of language, it then already starts framing for you the questions. And without you realizing it, it actually constrains your creativity in terms of thinking about what could this be? How should it be used? Who can demand access to it, et cetera? So let me give you one example. And it's only meant to sort of um, make you uncomfortable, disrupt your thinking about this. So for example, people have been talking about the value of this in terms of having access to long-term care facilities. In Canada and elsewhere around the world, this has been one of the tragedies of the pandemic, which is that people in long-term care facilities have been at great risk. Several of them have died. They have died without family. Those who have not died are being cared for often without access to family. And everybody has found this difficult 
When I say everybody, I mean those who have intimate relations with people who are in those homes and those of us who are bystanders watching in horror and understanding that if we were in that situation, we would find this painful. So one idea, one proposal is that if you've been fully vaccinated and you can provide that documentation, you should be able to go into those long-term care facilities. Now, the reason I'm giving that as an example is that kind of seems on the face of it pretty reasonable. But what I want you to think about is the obligations we have to all people who are in congregate living situations, not just our elderly folks who are in a long-term care facility. So now we're starting to think about perhaps um, youth, street youth who go into a homeless shelter at night, or perhaps we're starting to think about um, women and children who are victims of domestic violence who end up in a congregate living situation as a temporary situation. What if we think about people who are incarcerated? So now think about these different settings. So I'm a prisoner or I'm about to go into a prison. I have to have a passport to get in. I'm going to be calling somebody up because I'm in a difficult, stressful situation and perhaps the police and social work are gonna come because I'm an abused woman and they're gonna take me to a shelter and I need a passport to get in. So that's one of the things I want us to start thinking about. And we may want to say that yes, access will be conditional upon having this, maybe. I'm not sure we do, but maybe. I'm willing to have a discussion about that, but I'm saying the mere fact that you think about this as a passport, you're thinking about it as privilege in terms of getting access to something that other people will not have access to. And there are many such places where we don't want that kind of thinking. And they may be positive stories, they may be negative stories, but they're about ways in which it doesn't make sense to have this language of a passport. I cannot imagine being told, you know, as a potential person to be incarcerated that I have to have a passport to get in. What's the system going to do if I say no? I can't go? Well, it brings up some legal questions I want to get into and, and some charter questions, but but I want you've anticipated where I wanted to go on the on the domestic uh, certification question. We talk about foreign travel in a minute, but you know, there are obviously legal potential program uh, issues with it, but there's also ethical issues and you mentioned for instance, or you touched on, I think, equity concerns, uh, discrimination, another risk. And of course, there are some people who just can't get a vaccine for one reason or another. So, you know, how deep do you think those, those potential inequity challenges or, or discrimination challenges go? I mean, it, more than just saying, no, you can't enter, are we staring down a, a sort of two-tiered social stratification? I, I definitely think we are. I think that we're looking at um, a very complicated and difficult issue. Some people reframe it as sort of almost a contest between ethics and equity on the one hand and the economy and you know autonomy on the other. Um, I do think that we are very much at risk of introducing this kind of bifurcation between the haves and the have-nots with respect to this certification. And the interesting thing is that some of that will be on the basis of choice, and some of that will be not on the basis of choice, but rather having to do with the absence of sufficient vaccine. So before I get into the issues around discrimination, I think what I wanna do is I just wanna pull back a minute and say that when we do think about this issue, we need to remember that whatever we call it, 
it's conditional upon getting a vaccine. And we're living at a time when many people who would want access to the vaccine cannot have it. So if we organize our world into the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, and it's not even on the necessarily on the basis of choice, think about who the privileged people are who will get access to various venues before others. When you have the option as an alternative to say, how can we make this safe for everyone? And then we get to remember that vaccines are only part of the toolkit. And in fact, if you look at the advice from public health, they're very clearly saying to people, it's not that you get vaccinated and then you're quote unquote free. You've got a get out of jail card. You can run around without a mask, without washing your hands, without social distancing. You can hug up anybody and everybody. You know, that's not the world that it's going to be. And so you need to think about the vaccine as part of a toolkit. And you then need to think about ways in which you can continue to make various environments safe for everyone. So in that context, I do worry about discrimination. I worry about it globally and domestically. Globally, it's really clear because we know that a vast majority of the countries do not have access to vaccine. They are not vaccine producers and they don't have the financial resources to negotiate the contracts that wealthier nations have done. And at this point, the donations that have been made to both COVAX are insufficient to address the global need. So at the very least, we know in the immediate future, if we do introduce something like a vaccine passport for international travel, that you will be providing this to a privileged elite. And you will be doing so in order that they, quote unquote, would be free to travel with insufficient attention to the places they're traveling to and those populations who may still be at risk. If you come back domestically, I'm extremely worried about things uh, that have to do with racialized and marginalized communities that for various reasons may or may not have a vaccine and amongst those who do have a vaccine who may have their status questioned or challenged. So again, just to make this concrete, let me give you an example. Imagine a young man, a black young man, a black young man with maybe a French accent. You think, you have no reason to know, he might be here on a visit, or maybe he's a recent immigrant from another country. You're the hostess at a restaurant. You're doing your job. You ask to see his vaccine passport, his vaccine certificate, his vaccine pass, whatever we end up calling it. He produces a piece of paper. It's from a country in Africa. And you think, well, I think I've read a lot in the paper that African countries don't have vaccine. This photocopy looks pretty used to me. It's ratty around the edges. In fact, it's been taped. I don't actually think this is a real anything. I think this is a fraud. I think this is just a photocopy of some piece of paper that's been manipulated. And so I say, sorry, you can't come in. Now, maybe that person is just doing their job to the best of their ability. Maybe. But maybe that person has racist tendencies and they just actually played out, but in a way that's not transparent. One of the important differences between what might or might not happen at a border and what might or might not happen in a private business venue is that we would like to believe that people working at border control aren't racist. And if they are, that there's actually a mechanism for dealing with that inappropriate behavior. Much harder to know that somebody working in the private sector 
is properly trained, doesn't have those kinds of views, and wouldn't exercise them. So that's just one very kind of concrete example. Um, and that's in a context where a person's trying to actively use their certification to access a facility. The flip side is many people will know of serious problems in Toronto, in per particular parts of the country. Also here where I live in Halifax with, you know, a stop and frisk kind of system. We call it carding here. Um, where people can be stopped by law enforcement and asked to produce identification. We have good data, robust data, showing that there are clear racial features to that practice. How do we know those won't get replicated? But now with a different thing, I'm not asking to see your driver's license. I'm asking to see your vaccine certificate. I worry deeply about having a world that we purposely divide between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated at a time when a lot of people can't even choose to be vaccinated. And even when they can, it's not clear to me that we want to embrace the consequences of bifurcating the world in this way. You know, I'm a little embarrassed to say that when I was thinking of the uh, vaccine passes for foreign travel, I had never made the leap to consider what happened beyond the border. I, I thought of it exclusively as something you'd present at the border. I just didn't even think about, okay, well, what happens when you go beyond the border into, into a domestic setting? Uh, so I want to try to imagine it so that your example is resonating. I want to try to imagine a situation where we don't have a domestic check, but we do have a foreign check. And so you have no right to, to check domestically, but you do have a right to check at the border. And I know people bring up the instance of for instance, yellow fever, vaccination, or tuberculosis, or whatever it might be, is the argument against that then uh, an argument of uh, coming from a place of concern about global equity, about who can travel across borders then? And, and what's the trade-off there versus ensuring that, new, that, that we protect folks who are here? And I'm, I'm thinking about the, the sort of tension that is layered um, already with the example you've given from, from sort of COVAX uh, availability and global vaccine availability. And it strikes me that that's a very real concern, but what's the trade-off at the border? Well, I think there are a lot of issues to think about there. So certainly a number of people keep raising the example of the yellow fever card. Um, I have one. Uh, years ago, I received that vaccine in order to travel. In fact, at the time I received it, it was only good for 10 years. And we now have enough experience that that one vaccine will last me a lifetime. But one of the things we need to think about is that that's something that's managed globally. It's one standard and you, it's part of the international health record. And it's in fact, the only thing that's been put on that record by the WHO. At this point, WHO has not put COVID-19 on that. We don't have a standardized global approach. WHO is working on standards for digital certification, and they're using that language, and they're saying explicitly that it should not be used for international travel. Now, they could change their mind, that's true, but what they've said thus far is that it would be wrong to use this for international travel for two reasons. The first reason is that we actually do not have, at this time, robust evidence with respect to transmissibility. So we have evidence about the vaccines with respect to safety and efficacy. And so we're encouraging people to get vaccinated. 
We believe that people will have a certain amount of immunity. We don't know how long it will last for. We don't know how robust it will be. We don't know how much it will change from one vaccine to another. We don't understand fully how that will play out and get more complicated with all of the variants. So at this point, we don't actually know that once you're vaccinated, you cannot transmit. And that's the whole value behind this kind of program that people are setting up. They're thinking, well, you're safe. You can come in. You won't infect people. We don't actually know that at this point. We could one day. The second reason WHO says we should not be using this for international travel is because of the equity issue. Most people do not have access to the vaccine, and that's going to be true for several years. So in that context, it becomes really important for us to think about what kind of world we're building. In that context, I would argue more broadly, it is very important that whatever we do be one standard nationally. That's sorry, internationally. And that's not what's happening. What we're seeing is the private sector, some jurisdictions going ahead with whatever they're going to call their system. And the problem with that is you're not going to necessarily have it be coordinated. I mean, even within the travel industry, you've got different groups working on this. And I think that what we need to think about is you have a global problem, a global crisis, and we, smart as we are, somehow haven't figured out that we need a global solution. We need a global approach. And that's one of the things I worry about deeply with this idea around the vaccine passports is it's grounded very much in a certain kind of individualism, a certain kind of nationalism. It's not about a global perspective or approach to a problem. And it is, quite frankly, very self-interested. It's about people who imagine themselves being able to travel again. And right now, most of the people who would be able to do that are people in long-term care facilities who are not typically the people that are flying about the world. Um, and they're also our healthcare providers. We're now starting to get into younger age groups. But when you get young enough, you'll be looking at people with young families, children under the age of 16. So we're now saying, well, families aren't going to travel. So it's just going to be who? The jet setters and the business people and the very wealthy. I mean, I think we really need to understand how we think this is going to change the world for the better. And that's where I have a big question mark. How does this make this a better world? Now, in that context, I think I want to go back to something I said at the beginning, and it has to do with the connection between vaccines and vaccine certification. You can't get a vaccine certificate if you can't get a vaccine. So one of the things I've been trying to get people to think about is what if we were to put a lot of our energy now into making sure as many people as possible get vaccinated instead of getting distracted by how can we get as many people as possible flying again? And I think that's a really important thing to think about. And the example I use here um, is uh, the Caribbean. So Full transparency, uh, my family comes from the island of Barbados. Barbados, along with a number of Caribbean countries and Mexico, is suffering. They are not wealthy countries. They're countries whose GDP is almost wholly dependent on tourism. And at the end of January, Canada decided to cancel all flights to those countries until the end of April. That's three months. Now, we can say, and I actually believe in many respects, that's a good decision. It protects Canadians and it protects people who live in those countries because we're not going to be allowing the virus to travel through humans. 
back and forth between these countries. So from a health point of view, it's a very good thing. From an economic point of view, it's really hurt those countries in a way that it hasn't hurt Canada as a country. It may have hurt the airlines as a business. In that context, I've argued, maybe our government should be thinking very carefully about duties of reparation. So Canada has made contributions to COVAX for vaccines. Canada should continue to make contributions to COVAX for vaccines, but maybe we also have a duty of reparation. And the reason we might have a duty of reparation is we made a political decision that had direct political and economic country consequences, I mean, for these countries. And so maybe we owe them vaccine. Now, how does that connect all back up here? It means that we would be thinking not, oh, great, all these Canadians are vaccinated, they can now go back to the Caribbean. We'd be thinking, oh, wait a second, what about the people in those host countries? What have we done to make sure that they're safe too? And I think that's the problem. We keep thinking about our freedom without understanding that whoever has increased freedom comes at the expense of those who will now have decreased freedom by virtue of not having the right kind of certification. I, you know, last week, uh, I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks closely and a couple of months less closely. And the more I think about it, the more I learn, the less inclined I am to to support the idea. And I think I've reached a point where I simply don't think we ought to do it. And I'm trying to break down the different levels of concern. And we've touched on both domestic and global ethical concerns. Uh, but you bring up a scientific concern, I think, that often gets lost in the debate, which is we're calling for these sorts of things without knowing whether or not they're going to really work. And when you touch on the question of, of how long does immunity last, for instance, how many, uh, you know, can you uh, transmit the virus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it strikes me that uh, that part of the debate has sort of disappeared uh, from, from the mainstream. It's just sort of assumed that if you have it, you can you can go. So am I to understand that these programs are rolling out without that information? And what does that say about them? Well, I think some of those programs certainly are rolling out. We know for a fact that a number of countries have done that. I think you gave the example earlier about Israel with the Green Pass. We know a number of businesses have done that. So you know, you've, you've got the airlines, for example, Qantas uh, is moving in that direction. We certainly have a number of other, you know, uh, private uh, industry that has said that they're going to move in that direction and there's nothing stopping them. And if you look at the United States, President Biden has said it will not come from the government, at least not federally. Um, it will come from the private sector. And I worry about that deeply. Um, and I worry about it not only because of, as you say, the ethical and equity issues, but surely we want to live in a world where our behaviors and our policies are grounded in evidence. And I think one of the things we do know is that none of the vaccines are 100% effective. So that means even those who think they're getting um, AstraZeneca, sorry, not AstraZeneca, um, if they're getting the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccines, which are showing around 95% um, efficacy, it's still not 100%. So that means just in a population of every 100 people that get the vaccine, five of them are at risk that they might still get sick and might still transmit. And amongst the 95, we don't yet know enough about what kind of immunity they do or don't have, and specifically what kind of uh, transmissibility is still possible. 
And I'm sure everybody has heard anecdotal evidence of somebody who got the first shot and then got sick before they got the second shot. Some people who had both shots and gotten sick. And the problem with this virus is, you know, we don't actually see it at the moment that it transmits, right? And so I think we need to be constantly thinking about that. And I would encourage people to think about the public health advice that is consistent around the world, which is you do not get vaccinated and then think that you can just walk about without following and respecting whatever the public health measures are. It's just one part of the toolkit. And if you think back to some of the very early pictures coming out of Israel when they were celebrating the fact that they had introduced this Green Pass, one of those images was of a concert. If you look at the picture carefully, people are wearing masks, people are socially distanced, the concert is outside. And I would say to the organizers, so why did you demand, in addition to all of that, vaccine certification? Because what you did by virtue of that is you no longer made the event open to everybody who was willing to follow those rules you made it available to a segment of the population only. And that's what I mean by saying, are there ways in which you can try to achieve the public health goals that you have and not close off the world to half your population or more, depending upon where you are in terms of vaccination? Now, one of the things that's interesting is the government in Israel has been very clear. They have said, look, this is part of our strategy to encourage people to get vaccinated. They will see that if you want to return to anything close to a normal life, if you want to go to a concert, if you want to go to the gym, you better get yourself vaccinated. And so, you know, that brings us into questions about, you know, mandatory vaccination. And there are different ways of making people get vaccinated. You can use force or you can use persuasion. And at what point does the persuasion move into undue influence, move into subtle coercion? And so I think in that context, you know, there are so many other ways in which we could be proceeding. Uh, we could have standards that would be open to everybody. So, for example, we could, if we thought that there were specific places that were high risk, where we really want to be thinking about this in terms of protecting people, we might say, for example, to gain access to the long-term care facility, that yes, I'm sorry, but we have to protect not only your loved one, but all the residents and the staff, and we are going to ask for vaccination. Or you could say, well, ask for vaccination. Or if you can show that you have contracted the virus and have survived, then we'll work on immunity as well. So you can either be vaccinated or have contracted the virus. Or we could say, you know what, if you don't if you haven't had the virus and for whatever reasons you haven't been able to be vaccinated or you've chosen not to be vaccinated, we'll do rapid testing, right? So again, if you thought about vaccination as part of a toolkit, I think you'd have a better approach all around in terms of issues of equity and in terms of uh, using all of science to our benefit. What about uh, there's two things I want to touch on that are related. One is access to technology and the other is privacy. But but so let me start with access to technology, then bridge over to privacy. If there is a digital route, not everybody has a smartphone. Not everybody has uh, access to one. Uh, not everybody. And if you have a two-tiered system, then you've got a smartphone app and a paper app, and there's there's concerns that you might discriminate against one form or the other, presumably against the paper form. So to what extent does unequal access to technology undermine the idea of, of a certification program that you use to get into X, Y, or Z? Well, 
Well, you know, that's a huge, huge issue. And I'm so glad that you raised it. And the reality of it is a lot of people, myself included, have made this point, right, that not everybody has a smartphone, that already you're, you know, uh, discriminating on the basis of wealth, but also sometimes on the basis of age, sometimes on the basis of geography. I mean, there's lots of ways in which you need to think about that. But the thing that I try to get people to do is think beyond that. It's not just what technology do you have to have in order to be able to demonstrate that you have the certification. What technology do you have to have in order to be able to read it? And by that, you know, we don't know what different people are going to be doing with these various um, digital mechanisms. And by, you know, some people are using QR codes, some people are using barcodes, some people want to link it to facial recognition apps, et cetera. So imagine the infrastructure from a technological point of view that you require in order to be able to read it, scan it, check its authenticity. And that takes us directly to your concerns about privacy. I mean, I gave one example, the facial recognition apps, right? Those are huge. I mean, on my phone, I've never turned mine on. I don't want my phone to have my image and to be able to coordinate that with, you know, getting access to my phone data. I think a lot of people are probably like me about that. We also know that those facial recognition apps have huge problems around um, scanning people of different races and ethnicities. So, you know, there's a whole host of issues that have to do with the technology. And, you know, quite frankly, for, for people in Canada, I mean, it's not that long ago that we weren't able to even make payroll work for our federal public employees, right? <laughs> so how much confidence do you have that it's going to work well and that lots of people who might even legitimately have a proper vaccine certificate would not, in fact, be disenfranchised. So you know, it's, it's all this imaginary. People imagine that it's going to be simple, that it's going to work. It's not going to be costly. They're going to be free. The world's going to be wonderful. And when you start pulling it apart, it's like, I don't know what world you're imagining. Like, I can only see all the ways in which it could go wrong. And every time it goes wrong, there's somebody who's being hurt, Right. Um, either in terms of their ability to access a place, in terms of their ability to, to work. Um, you know, and I think, again, we need to think really clearly about what's the goal. If the goal is safety, which I think it is in the context of a lot of the domestic uses, we need to think about safety first. And the vaccine certificate might be part of safety, but it's not the ticket. And that's the problem with this this mechanism and this language, it's it really is perceived by so many as, as, a, as a path, a, pa a, a passe-partout, you would say, you know, and I think we haven't even begun to talk about, you know, all the other ways in which you would play out. I mean, look, at a huge problem in Canada and elsewhere has been the safety of our migrant workers. And how are we going to deal with that? Uh, what happens with respect to refugees? Does this now become a condition of immigration? You know, I think that the imaginary hasn't actually gone far enough in terms of understanding how if you buy into this idea, you are changing the world. And I would suggest possibly dramatically and for the long term. And, and let me just expand on that very briefly. What do I mean by dramatically? If you put this infrastructure in place, I find it hard to imagine that it will only be used for COVID-19. Right. Some people are already talking about COVID-21 with all the variants. Right. But our scientists are telling us that we should anticipate another pandemic in the you know, near to not too distant future. But already I can imagine lots of people saying, well, if we've got this vaccine on it, why don't we put all your other vaccines on it? 
makes perfect sense. Then you've got all your vaccines in one place. And, and I think that makes perfect sense too. And then, you know, they're going to say, well, look, you know, we've been trying to get this electronic health record for so long. And yes, health is a provincial responsibility, but wouldn't it be great if you left your province and went somewhere else in Canada and you, you know, tripped and fell and you had to go to the hospital that you could actually provide your doctor with your health record? Wouldn't that be in your best interest? Of course it would. And so, well, let's just add all the health information. And then you think, well, hey, wait a sec, didn't you do that genetic testing thing? Like, was it 23andMe? Was it Ancestry? Oh, yeah, let's just put all that genetic data in there, too. That's really good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it just goes on and on and on. And then the question comes back to, and who can have access to this data? Who controls this data? Where does this data rest? And so you have to actually think about all that at the beginning. Why? Because once you introduce this, it's not going away. I mean, we will never go back to flying the way I was able to fly as a child, right? And there are many people who have no experience of flying, but for the way it is today with all of the technology for you to get through in order to be able to get on the plane. All of those security measures were brought in and they're good and they're positive, but they're never going away. They're just going to be made more and more sophisticated. And that's what's going to happen here. If we go down this route without carefully thinking about it, we are going to end up in a situation where we have created a new kind of world where biology is going to matter in a way that it has not previously played a role in terms of access to the goods of life. Uh, you know, it's funny. I was listening to you throughout, well, throughout, I mean, throughout the entire episode, but especially during that last answer. And the thing that kept coming back to me was the, have you met us? I feel like every time we want to roll something out like this, we should ask um, those who support it, have you met us? Because every time something like this uh, happens, we we make an awful hash of it. And and uh, I think this is, it's, it's interesting. I can't think of an issue that I have thought about and had someone on to talk about that I have become so firmly opposed to so quickly as this one. <laughs> I just, I, I'm truly, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of taken me aback. I'm taken aback a little bit at how, how quickly I've, I've become deeply concerned about this listening to, to the concerns you've, you've raised. But it, but it seems intuitively appealing to people, which is what strikes me, right? When you sort of like the person on the street or the person on social media, they would say, well, why wouldn't you do this, right? It seems so intuitively and powerfully appealing until you until you think about it for a little bit well the thing is it is intuitively appealing and i think that you know we need to to recognize that and we need to understand why that's the case and and if you do that then you can sort of see well how can we respond to what it is that the people think this is going to bring to them right because one of the things that's really interesting about this but quite frankly about many things is it's very easy at the outset to see the benefits and to become really enthusiastic, especially if you can see yourself amongst the beneficiaries. And so then it becomes really important to think about, but who will be harmed by this policy? And that's because all policies, even when you approach them with the best of intentions, they are going to inevitably have unintended consequences. And it behooves us to really think about those from the get-go and so in this context, what I've been arguing for very clearly is to say, can we pull back from the issue of vaccine certification and really say, what's the big picture goal? The big picture goal is to make the world safe again so that people can resume activities that they always thought of as either just 
regular, mundane, boring, but which have now taken on a different kind of meaning when they've experienced things like radical lockdowns. So what is it that people want again? They want to be able to move about freely. They want to be able to go back into social situations, not thinking that they're at risk or that they're putting other people at risk. And there is no magic solution for that. And the vaccine passport is not magic. It will not do that. And so what we need to do is to come back and say, what are we trying to achieve and how can we go about achieving it? And yes, this is part of the response, but it's not the whole ticket. And that's what I worry about. And so again, big picture, pulling back. I've argued you always want policy that's evidence-based. And right now, the evidence doesn't yet support this. I'm prepared to say it might one day. It doesn't right now. You also want to be sure that whatever policy you introduce will not further entrench inequalities. And we've already alluded to a couple of them, whether it's around things like racism or whether it's around things like access to a smartphone. We always want to have policies that instill trust, not exacerbate mistrust. And the example I gave about Israel, I think, is in that domain. If you're prepared to say explicitly, we're developing policies in such a way that people are going to be persuaded that they ought to be vaccinated, you're well aware that what you're trying to do is to influence, perhaps unduly, people to become vaccinated. Now, don't get me wrong on this one. I think vaccination is very important. I support it. I advocate for it. But when I approach people who are vaccine hesitant, it's not with the idea of forcing them to become vaccinated, but with the idea of engaging and understanding what are their reservations. So can I answer their reservations such that they can make a choice they're comfortable with in order to become vaccinated? That's how you build trust. We need a lot of trust with this problem and all future problems. And lastly, I do think you want a policy that's well aligned with public health goals. And I think if you can stay focused on public health goals, you will see vaccination as part of the solution, as part of the future, but not all of it. And so that's when you can then be more creative rather than trying to rely on this one thing to quote unquote, open up the world, to get everybody back to work, to get us back to normal. I hate that last sentence. I want to be really clear about it. Normal was pretty <laughs> shitty for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that, that brings us to time, but I am I'm sort of stunned at how much we covered. Well, how much you covered really. Uh, it was, it was fantastic. I, it, it, comprehensive and persuasive and um, certainly convinced me and so thank you so much for that. I, I very much appreciate it. Well, thank you. It was uh, very nice of you to invite me and provide me with an opportunity to share my views. I appreciate it. Thank you. And as always, thanks as well to Aaron Reynolds and Tamira Ahmad, who distant wherever they may be, make this show possible and make it so much better than, than I ever could on my own. And of course, to all of you who listen from wherever you might be, I uh, hope you're staying safe, uh, as safe as possible. And we'll see you again here in a couple of weeks.